Hey everyone, I'm Mike Levy. Welcome back to episode 66 of the Pink Bike Podcast. Today, we're going to head into the workshop and talk about the next best thing to riding your bike, which is working on your bike. Actually, I think I have to admit that there are days when I head into the shop with full intentions of fixing something before going for a ride, only to find myself still in there three hours later, beavering away on some job that probably doesn't need to be done. Casimir, my drivetrains are so clean. Today, it's all about working on and repairing bikes from the fun jobs to the dirty ones, to having to install 10 sets of cush cores for the field test. We're going to talk about that. To spending 10 hours installing DI2 only for it to come apart on the first ride. <sighs> our most embarrassing workshop injuries. And we're going to talk about our favorite tools. Speaking of favorites, I could ramble on for hours by myself here. But I've got Mike Casimir here today. Kaz, you and I have a little over a decade each of bike shop experience. So plenty of time before pink bike, spinning wrenches, working on bikes. Quick question. Do you have a favorite tool besides me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be the, the three-way wrench, like the tri-tool, the four, five, and six mil. Classic. I, yeah. I know some people hate on it. There's some purist mechanic out there just complaining. I think Ryan Palmer has uh, expressed a dislike for that tool, but I grab it so often and it just works well. And yeah. It like wears to your hand and I, I like it. It's tough in tight spaces, but it is like yeah. the classic go-to grab you know, works on most things. Yeah, you can get a bike pretty much built with one of those. And yeah. So that's, I think it's my favorite. My favorite tool is near useless. It's this fake pedal from Enduro Bearing. I've talked about it before. And we have so many bikes. And when they're on the stand, so many test bikes are on the stand. I don't want to put pedals on a bike just to turn the cranks easier to adjust shifting. So this fake pedal thing, the threads are slightly undersized. So you could turn it into your drive side crank by hand. And then you just hold on to this big bearing and completely not needed, but I love it. We've also got RC today because, I mean, not many people have been working on bikes as long as RC has. RC, do you have a favorite tool? Uh, actually, it's it's my uh, spoke wrench. I think I got it from DT Swiss. It's a little plastic spoke wrench with a, I don't know the name of it, but anyway... I've kept that in my toolbox since I worked at the uh, Fullerton Bike Shop, the Schwinn Shop, when I was in high school. I mean, uh, in junior college. Holy cow! That was, it's the best. Do you, and you still I use still it, use or it. do you have it like on a stand? No, no, somewhere? I still use it, and, and it's like it, it, it's never stripped a, a spokehead that wasn't already stripped, and you know, it, it, it isn't that classic, you know, cast metal one that isn't quite the right for the small size and not quite right for the larger size, and on and on and on and on. It just fits. It fits just about everything. We've also got Sarah Moore here today with us. Sarah Moore is going to read the news. But first, Sarah Moore, do you have a favorite tool? Well, I do really like the that like satisfying click of a torque wrench. <laughs> yep. I really like that. But like the tool that I use the most would be my my one up multi tool on my yeah. on my in my head gym. Like I just adjust. Is that the or... new one or the original full size one? So. <laughs> kind of silly here i ha actually have both on my bike right now because <laughs> yeah, i really two like in the head tube no 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 one in the top so one, one in the, the bottom head because i find it so easy to just like get that one out and use it really quickly but i like to have you know all of the other stuff like the chain breaker tool so i just carry that in my pump so you know my bike's yeah. a little bit heavier but i've got all the options and i also have a tool easily accessed at my fingertips nice okay i got i have a question before we go to news here Casimir, when was the last time 
you used a torque wrench. I know that, you know what happens with torque wrenches? Everybody gets sort of like pretentious about them and they're like, why only use a torque wrench? When was the last time you actually used one? Uh, probably yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a, I have, oh, I, I have those, Damn I have those like, I've got the preset keys they are like set to six yeah. or five newton meters. So like when I'm doing cockpits and carbon bars, I'm kind of particular, like, yeah, I fully agree. Well, I'm not going to say you don't need a torque wrench. I do think they're important. I use them for, I started using them more in the last few years just because of so many carbon bars and cockpit mm -hmm. swaps. For most stuff, I don't use them, but like that stuff, I do like to know that I'm at six newton meters or whatever. RC, but I want to revise my I want to revise my favorite tool though. I thought my oh. favorite tool is actually the star nut setter tool. Uh, I got oh. one of those cool little ones that like goes over and yep. makes it sure that it goes in straight. That's probably my favorite. I I have the huge park one, and every probably every fifth time I use it, I catch a tiny flap of skin between the tool <laughs> and the steer tube. Ah! <laughs> RC, do you use a torque wrench? I use a torque wrench on on all the cockpit stuff. The same as Kaz. I've got the two presets, and I've, I've got a, you know, I've got one of those torque wrench arms. So what I do is I try to get it as close as I yeah. can. And I check the preset to see if I'm good. <laughs> and if sometimes it's just click, 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 perfect, you know, not maybe a little tiny turn. Yeah. yeah. RC is a torque wrench now. <laughs> well, they use him for know, the calibration. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we used to play a game in the bike shop with bolts. We used to, a lot of times we would use rotor bolts and we would, Without a torque wrench, so the two or three mechanics had a, a T25 Torx, and we would screw the bolt in, and then what's what are, it's like 55 inch pounds or something like that, and we would see who could get the closest to the right torque. Anyways, yeah. nerd alert. Nerd games. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys, I would be forever grateful if you guys give us a 10 out of 10 rating on whatever app you're listening to us on, and if you're not going to make it 10 out of 10, just don't bother give us the rating. Just don't do it. And make sure to comment below, tell us whatever your favorite tool is and why. Sarah, let's get into the news of last week. Okay, so first up, we've got another new bike from Santa Cruz this week with the 2022 Bronson. Wait, is it new? Uh, looks, <laughs> well, if you'd looked at it, you might not think it's new from the side profile. Okay, go. Sorry, Sarah. Go ahead. Okay, so this is version 4.0 of the Bronson. It has 150 millimeters rear travel paired with 160 millimeter fork. But now it has a 29er front wheel and a 27 and a half rear wheel, which I think is funny because that's exactly what I did for my Juliana Rubion staff ride back in 2019. Sarah Moore, mountain biking sage. <laughs> um, so they probably saw that and decided that, you know, that, that's the design they wanted to go with. Um, the head tube angle now sits at 64 and a half degrees in the low setting. That's paired with a 76 and a half degree seat tube angle and 439 millimeter chain stays. Reach numbers range from 402 for an extra small, which has two 27 and a half wheels, to 500 millimeters for the extra large. Kaz, you've had a bit of time on this bike. What are your initial impressions? Yeah, I just have two rides in. It feels pretty small to me. I think I've been riding a lot of long travel 29ers, so it feels pretty different. Um, yeah, the first couple of rides, just kind of getting the hang of it. That small rear wheel does feel like it wants to scoot out and get sideways. I can see it totally being a fun bike for the kind of jibby rider, somebody that wants to have that, uh, well, you leave his turn, the nimbility of the smaller <laughs> wheel. <laughs> if we use it enough, it'll become a real word. Yeah, so, Those nimbility yeah. of the downcountry bikes. <laughs> yeah. Kaz, is this a new frame? Like, so I'm just looking at the picture of this bike, the side profile, it looks exactly the same as the old one. And then the top comment on this article from Filthy Phil 
I might be alone in this, but even the Meg, as an ex-Mega Tower owner, I'm getting kind of bored with all these same-looking Santa Cruz bikes. There's a lot of comments on this just saying, hey, these things look exactly the same. What's, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, it, it is a new frame. And if you see it from the, like, look from the top down, the down tube is a lot larger than the, the previous models. But, but yeah, I agree. I mean, they all have a similar look to them for better or worse. Like they've done a good job making it look like a, the, the look itself is nice if you hadn't seen all the other ones. But um, yeah, I'm started to kind of like, I just like the wackier bikes these days, I think, just because they're, they're different for us. But as far as ride and quality and all that goes, like Santa Cruz has it pretty dialed. So, you know, whether it don't, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing. So when was the last Bronson cast? How many years ago? Was it two years ago, I think, was the update? Or three, maybe. 2019. Yeah, when was your Ruby on, Sarah? That was 2018. I wrote the article in 2019. It was, I think it was released in 2018 oh, yeah. or 2019. Year. Yeah. Three years right. ago. It's following like the normal product cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It just seems like there's a lot of new bikes all the time and they all look the same. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You, I you know what would be interesting? To get the old Bronson and this new Bronson side by side and do a comparison. And I mean, you, you could do that with any bike, of course. I think it would be interesting with this just because visually they look so similar. I would, I would like to see. Yeah. I mean, basically they put a, a bigger wheel on the front and it's mullet yeah. and magic now and best of both worlds and all that stuff. So all that stuff, all the things we'll get. Yeah. We'll see how the longer yeah. term review goes. It might even have someone else review it that, with a different perspective in here, but yeah, either way, new bike. Um, I don't think previous Bronson fans are going to be disappointed if they do end up with this one. Like it, Same kinematics and all that stuff. A little different. They did change some things, but it feels like the like the new VPP suspension. The last couple of years has a really good feel that I like, um, and this kind of retains that. A few little tweaks, but it's yeah, pedals well and descends well. All those things. We also had a first look at the 2022 Mondraker Summum Carbon. In September of last year, Mondraker updated the Summum, but suggested it was only going to be offered in aluminum because their team riders preferred the responsive feel of the aluminum version. It looks like that wasn't quite the whole story. The new frame (laughs) has a carbon front triangle, a carbon swing arm, and a one-piece carbon rocker link, helping to achieve an impressive claimed weight of 2,800 grams, or 6.17 pounds, without the shock. The included, yeah, it's pretty light. <laughs> I mean, not if you're comparing it to, you know, a cross-country bike, but compared to other downhill bikes, it's quite light. Uh, the included geometry kit provides two alternative headset cups, which gives plus or minus either one or two degrees of head angle adjustment. So this allows the bike to be set with a head angle that measures 61 and a half, 62 and a half, 63 and a half, 64 and a half, or 65 and a half degrees. The kit also makes it possible to add or subtract five millimeters from the chainstay length. So super light, super adjustable, and I haven't even mentioned it has integrated suspension telemetry. Is this the future? Is this more interesting, Levy? Are you excited now? <laughs> Straight to 65.5 degrees for my, for my <laughs> long travel down country bike. <laughs> yeah, short in those chainstays, steep and yeah. short, you'll be stiff. Speaking of chainstays, Kaz, 460 in the long setting. Yeah, that's pretty long. Yeah, that's go that's fast. good to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the integrated telemetry is pretty neat, Kaz. I know I kind of shit on Mondraker, uh, their last bike with Im- integrated telemetry. But I mean, if you're going to have it anywhere, RC, you might as well have it on a downhill bike, right? The only place you'd ever need it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like you get everything in the world on a downhill bike, but unless you race, you don't need that stuff. I mean, really, it's like a downhill bike is basically a ticket that says, yeah, I'm going to do 60 foot doubles. And if you don't, don't have that ticket, then you might as well just get an enduro bike, you know? <laughs> it's like, I'd hate to show up 
right now with a with a dual crown bike anywhere because I just don't have the seeds right now to do a huge do all the stuff huge and that's that's basically a uniform. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you guys think we could get this Mondraker under thirty pounds? Uh, yeah, I bet pretty close because that weight is about. I mean, it takes some work, but that weight is like the same as a Ibis Ripmo frame, I think. Yeah, so I don't think it'd be t- too hard. <laughs> Yeah, I I like Mondraker bikes. They look like they're from the future, guys. They are from yeah, the future. Like they started half <laughs> yeah, the trend the that we're doing now. You know, the, the yeah. super short stem, super long front centers. I mean, they are the future. But that weight is like, it's lighter than all the enduro bikes on the market pretty much. It's Or the same. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I'd yeah. like to see a, how light you could make it. Maybe you should make a project out of it, huh? Sounds like a bike for Levy. Down country, downhill bike. <laughs> yeah, see what weird thing you can do with it. Well, to, it doesn't have a lock art, at least. <laughs> you'd have to call it like up to hill or up downhill or something like that. you got to figure yeah. out a new one for this. Um, okay, so continuing with the pretty interesting new bike theme, uh, Scott's released a new Spark RC. And, oh, for you, RC, that's why we have you here today. And a Spark 900 this week. Uh, they both come in a carbon and an aluminum model. The XC race-oriented Spark RC and the trail-oriented Spark 900 both share the same frame, but the XC version has a 67.5, sorry, 67.2 degree head tube angle, while the more trail-oriented Spark 900 with a 10 millimeter longer fork uses a headset adjustment to achieve a 65.8 degree head tube angle. The Spark still uses the flex pivot suspension design, but now it has an integrated shock, which Scott says makes the platform laterally stiffer and allows them to lower the center of gravity. There's a little hatch on the bottom of the down tube that allows you to access the shock and a sag indicator to help with setup. Scott bought Bold or licensed Bold design. So when you look at the bike, you can't see a shock. It's inside the frame. So like... Kind of looks like a hardtail almost. There's room for two water bottles, Levy. All I see is a remote lever with three levers we didn't get there yet (laughs) (laughs) twin locks coming up (laughs) so the new bike comes with not only that integrated shock but a new integrated bar and stem from synchros it was designed to be used in conjunction with the bike and its twin lock suspension system so yeah it has the twin lock suspension system and a dropper post which makes three little levers on that left side it sure looks good like again this thing scott builds bikes from the future too they, they build light bikes. I love the way they look. I'm personally not a fan of their approach with the lockouts, Kaz. RC, you guys know that. They, uh, they yeah. take a more active approach to the suspension and then depend on the lockout lever to firm it up for pedaling prowess. Uh, what do you guys think of this thing? It, it always makes me want to pull it all apart and do stuff to it, which I guess is good. Maybe like I have one coming pretty soon I, somewhere oh. in, in the water somewhere. So I got the trail version coming. Um, and like the geometry looks great and it looks similar to like the transition spur that I've been riding. So it's going to be interesting to do back to back because those are like opposite bikes it's as far as like. spur. <laughs> no, but it comes with a 34 and I've got a 34 in the spur. Like it, yeah. the numbers are actually similar to the spur, like almost in that realm. So it's going to be interesting to try, except that it has a 60 millimeter integrated handlebar stem. So I like running short stems even on bikes like this. So well, forget about the gonna... number and just. You got to forget about the number and just like... No, but I like my hands, hands to be over the same part of the fork. Yeah. I usually run the same yeah. like stem on all bikes. But yeah, all those bells and like the cables and the lock, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to give it a good try. 
You could just get Scott to send you an extra one-piece carbon stem handlebar in a shorter length. I don't know if they make one. I don't but, know either. I had yeah. one. I one had thing one I kind of was interested, though. Yeah, but they, they made this one different now, Levy, because they run the, the cable yeah. and housing goes inside the headset. Oh. Yeah, they did some things. <laughs> it's a I lot. mean, if it's you're going to have that many cables, I guess you got to do something. Yeah, they get tucked in. But I do like that they make this bike in aluminum. I would kind of like to get the aluminum frame because it looks cool. Like the shock inside the aluminum frame, that's different. And like a raw aluminum one, if you built it up to be like burly-ish down country thing, I think that'd be cool. It's bold. So Scott bought bold. That means no more bold bikes? I'm not really sure how that relationship works. I I feel like that might be correct, but I don't want to say it is because I'm not sure. But I think they either license it or they just pull them all all out. But yeah. Yeah. RC, what do you you think of Scott bikes? I mean, I think this thing looks pretty good. I'm not... I, I guarantee you it's not going to ride like that Spurk has, but... Well, you never know. I'm going to try. I, yeah. I, I like Scott because they're not afraid to do something different. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they were late on 29ers and then they went in full, you know, they, they went all in. But they, they're not afraid to do, put thousands of cables all over the place and have buttons. And, I mean, they just do stuff that's different. It's like Scott's the new Cannondale. Mariel Cannondale, just their frames look different. They weren't afraid to, like glue two suitcases together with an aluminum strip in the middle and make a frame out of it. And, you know, some of the stuff doesn't work and some of it does. <laughs> and so, yeah, I've always been a fan, but what I, what I'd like to bring, bring up is like, we've got this, uh, a new generation of like, uh, of emperor's new clothes bikes, you know? So, so it, dual suspension is obviously, obviously the future of cross country at the highest level, but Nobody wants to have a dual suspension bike that looks like a dual suspension bike. So Trek's got this hidden shock in their top tube. Like, like nobody, everybody's going to be fooled that it's really a hardtail, but it's got a shock somewhere inside there. And now Scott's got one hidden in the down tube. And it's the same as enduro. It's, it's the same as e-bikes. You know, like if you put a dual crown fork on an e-bike, you've committed a sin because as long as it has a single crown fork, it's a real mountain bike. So the entire industry is holding their breath like... Who's going to be the first one to come out with dual crown forks on all of their e-bikes, you know, every single line, but nobody has the seeds to do it because it's still emperor's new clothes pretending. And, and I think it's really funny that we have the two, two bicycles on the, each end of the spectrum. And now everybody's like, where can we hide the shock? So it looks like a gravel bike with upright bars, you know, nobody will know. It's like, okay, <laughs> stupid, just, just make a good bike and let's get on with our lives, you know? <laughs> so I see. It sounds like you're saying that this whole hidden shock thing might be something we see more of in the future. I think that we won't because it's like when you put when you make a specific bike like like Trek's cross country bike and, and and the Scott then you're like locked in to one shock and 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 one shock maker and you know Fox or whoever's making the shock for him isn't going to like push that design forward because it belongs to just one company so they're going to concentrate all their technology on something that, that that's out in the open that, that people can see their brand so it kind of like puts those bikes locks those bikes into a moment in history and everybody either follows them or they just walk past it and i think that this type of bike um people are going to think it's really cool but the industry is just going to walk past it it's not going to be like well, there you go. like uh, hatches in your down tubes. I mean, once the down tubes are large, you might as well put your stash in it, right? Yeah. They just put the shock in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and you put your water bottle on the outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm interested to ride it because it looks different, but I don't want to judge a book by its cover. It does look futuristic and space agey, and it's got some cool things. But what what do all those levers do, Kaz? Well, they're the same as the previous ones where you have ones for like the firm climbing mode, ones the kind of trailish mode, and ones descending mode, and then the other ones for your dropper post. Okay, so two but, levers for the suspension and one for the dropper post. Yeah. On the same amount. Same amount on the lines. You have three levers to accidentally hit while you're riding. To be fair, that probably is a better solution than using twin lock and then a third party remote lever that's never worked well with twin lock in my experience. Yeah. So to be fair, this is probably an improvement. If you're going to have three levers on the left-hand side of your handlebar. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Mine, yeah. Sorry, Scott. I'm probably going to change some things on it when it shows up eventually. (laughs) Do weird things like I did with the last thing you sent, but... We'll see. I'm excited. Okay, moving on from new bikes, James put together a retrospective piece on how much bike prices have changed in the past 10 years. Adjusted for inflation, a lot of the prices were actually pretty similar, but I don't think anyone reading through that article was wishing they were on a 2011 bike instead of the 2021 version. What were your guys' takeaways from that piece? It kind of confirmed what I I thought. I remember bikes used to be expensive, and they're still expensive, so... That's good to know, but not really. (laughs) (laughs) Not much has changed, it seems, except we're getting way more bike. Yeah. I think somebody commented that, um, you know, we we, we just want to complain. We don't, we don't really care about your, your, you know, your real numbers, your facts. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think if you're a a bicycle nerd, like you have to be to, to be a bicycle enthusiast, it's, it's really a measure of how much your car costs that your first car that you bought yourself your bicycle should cost more than your car. Okay, so say so you're 20 years old, you're you're you know, or 22 years old, you're out of college, you finally got enough money to buy your first car, you're going to buy a used something wrong because it's something you were dreaming about when you were younger. And, and you get it. RC, is this my life? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is you. <laughs> and then then you see the bicycle of your dreams and of course you're going to die for your for your sport, but you're just going to save up for your car so you're bicycle cost what 10 percent or 15 percent more than your car right now i use car cost what ten thousand twelve thousand dollars so a used bike i mean a new bike should cost thirteen thousand dollars i had a five hundred dollar chevy pickup truck that was brown and a seventy two hundred dollar santa cruz super oh you are so (laughs) perfect that's awesome i love that (laughs) i've still never paid more than five grand for a vehicle so nice my my bike waiting yeah so that's a, a true cyclist. That's the ratio, car to bike. Speaking of true cyclists, we just added a new staff member to our team with Matt Beer. And we also officially have Henry Quinney uh, joining our team after his, uh, after his trial period. I guess he made it through here. I um, don't know how he got through the trial period with that <laughs> bullshit op-ed about cable routing. Well, that's how he got through. You know, he riled up enough people and he passed the test. He, <laughs> yeah, I guess. He's wrong, though. Well, yeah. Like, objectively. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. Hi, Henry. He's on his way to Squamish. We can have a good debate when we get him in in person. Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to having him here in Squamish. Yeah, he's he's pedaling across the ocean. Nice. Yeah. And then Matt Beer, former Canadian downhill champion, two-time downhill champion. So he should be a good addition to the tech team. Not as fast as Levy, but as the (laughs) art. I got him on the uphills. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Definitely know. not the downhills. No. <laughs> That's really fast. I've only ridden with him once, and it was uh, eye-opening. He came down, and we rode a trail that he had never ridden before, and I was leading it out because it's got some, like, drops and, you know, gaps and things you'd want to know. And then 
at one point, I'm pretty sure it was him that asked me, like, hey, do you mind if I go ahead? I like hitting stuff blind. <laughs> and he just <laughs> sent the whole trail perfectly blind. I was like, oh, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> and that's the difference. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's amazing. So before we move on to our main discussion, we have to talk about the Toyota USA Instagram post that was making the internet rounds this week. For those of you that haven't seen it, it's obviously a post that aims at the mountain biker crowd, except, you know, they didn't quite get the details right. You know, they got a person on a bike and a full face helmet, full bike gear. He's standing in front of a Toyota 4Runner, except when you look a little bit closer, he's obviously on like a Walmart bike, like a $300 bike or something. He's got V-brakes. Uh, he's wearing like Air Jordans, I think. Uh, the 4Runner doesn't actually have a bike rack. It has like one of those flat tray roof racks instead of a bike rack. So it's like, it looks like the kind of bike that you would see just like bungee corded to the top of the car. Have you seen, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I mean, it, it had a kickstand at least. So it had a kickstand. <laughs> um, so yeah, tons of uh, filmmakers and riders chimed in with like pieces of advice to help Toyota with their marketing. Um, and it's, you know, it's no secret that mountain bikers drive Toyota Tacomas and 4Runners. Um, do you think this is like detrimental to Toyota's marketing or what do you think is going to like happen with this? I have a conspiracy theory. This was done on do. purpose. <laughs> this was done on purpose. And they got 10 times the play th from this Instagram ad than they would if they had an actual like mountain bike with a mountain biker and everything was kosher in the ad. I agree. Yeah, the traction it gained, even huge, bad or good, like so many more people know about it now where we wouldn't be talking about Toyota on this unless we had, unless it was this kind of thing. It was a normal ad with just like a regular modern mountain biker and no one yeah. would talk about. So maybe it was on, maybe they're brilliant marketing strategists. Yeah, because I saw they also sponsored the new uh, Matchstick Productions film. It's got like 14 pro riders. It's called The Biker's Ballad. It looks like I watched the trailer. It looks really cool. And the Toyota's the, you know, the presenting sponsor for this video. So obviously they've done some things right. So it's just, yeah. it's just hard to Easy figure enough. this one out. Yeah, but I'm in the USA. So Toyota, if you want to send me a vehicle, I will drive it. <laughs> Maybe you take a picture too. Let me know. <laughs> I'm you can put on your Air Jordans you, for the picture. Yeah, <laughs> you can't get a Tacoma though, Kaz. I don't even I, know. Yeah, that's they the send me old that, one. If you send me like yes. a 1989 like Hilux or something, the diesel one from Chile, I will take that. Yes, five thousand dollars or less. Go to the trailhead here, and there'll be thirty cars on a Saturday. Twenty-eight of them are Tacomas in Nardo gray. Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have that's some. The way we were talking about Santa Cruz before. You can tell what their next year's colors for their bikes will be if you just look at this year's Tacoma color. <laughs> I mean, they are beautiful trucks, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get on to our questions. And our first question is from Ben the Swabian. This is a mechanical question, which goes with our theme today for number 66. He, know, he wants to know what we do after we get a large puncture. He says, let's say you're out on a trail, suddenly a sharp rock slices open your tire and the hole is too big for the sealant to plug it. So you plug it with your rubber strips, maybe a couple of them, pump it back up, continue your ride. And then what do you guys do when you get home? RC, you've got a plugged tire. Let's say that it's still got plenty of life left. What are you doing? <laughs> well, you know, we're lucky. We can just dial 1-800, I need free stuff. So <laughs> any tire... <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> Any tire that looks bad, I just like go, oh gosh, I think I need a brand new. I asked the guy for the front and while you're at it, can yeah. I have a dissector in the rear? And they say, well, Mr. Cunningham, just this time. But yeah, I, I leave it in. And 
until the stuff comes out and i just i just play the roulette and if it if it starts leaking out of the out of the hole uh, one more time and i run and it looks bad and i just throw it away because you know it's not going to serve you i usually leave them in and then forget about them until the tire wears out and then when the tire's garbage i'm like oh yeah it's got a bunch of plugs in it please the plug things work super well but if you do get a brand new tire and you cut it, say you, you've just spent $300 on a brand new DHF that you absolutely need to ride your bike, <laughs> and then you've sliced it open, what you can do is take an old tire, always keep an old tire around, use some scissors, cut a square piece or a little patch of tire casing that covers the slice, file as much rubber off as you can so it's super flexible, and then just glue it on the inside using super glue over the cut, and then boom, your tire's fixed. Good as new. No way. I, that's too much work. Go down and get the kit. <laughs> you, you get free tires. No, no. <laughs> this, is, this is a fix that I use. So you just go and you get, you get the Gorilla, full-width Gorilla tape, and you and you have to clean it out really good. So you use, use a lacquer thinner or something like to get, to get all that stuff out. And you put like three things of Gorilla tape on there, and the pressure from the, the tire is not going to do anything. The sealant's going to work. It, it's pretty good. It'll it'll get you through a season, just just that. That sounds like a ghetto it fix. It is a ghetto fix, but you know. Yeah, I mean, you already did. Yeah. yeah. You throw a tube in it, and, and it's a perfect fix because there's no sealant to get around the edges of the tape. But if you don't run tubes, you can still No, that's it the worst. It still works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go, Ben the Swabian. Those are our answers for repairing a torn tire. The next one is from Oli J. He says, one thing you don't touch on much is the heightened importance of a fork on a hardtail versus a full suspension bike. Should people invest more in higher quality forks for their hardtails, Casimir? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, with the hardtail, no matter what, your fork is going to be better than your shock on it. So (laughs) (laughs) better invest that money somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. I'm not going to tell people not to put nice forks on the hardtails, like the, the more adjustments you can get and that type of thing. But um, yeah, I don't think it's a rule that you necessarily need to have like the highest end fork on anything, but it does, you know, if you want to have the adjustments and all the little features. It, uh, yeah, it's kind of a hard question. I don't, I do think forks are important for all bikes. Like nice suspension makes a difference, but it's a matter of budget really. But Would, would you say that fork setup on a hardtail is maybe more important than it is on a full suspension bike? No, I think it's important on everything. Yeah, it's kind of like you just follow the same rules. Like if you want a nice fork on your bike, a bike is a bike. So I don't think it's, uh, I would be just, I would feel the same about a budget fork on a hardtail as it would on a full suspension bike, just as as if I had a high-end fork on either one. Okay. RC, fork on a hardtail, would you suspect that you would generally need to run that fork firmer than you would on a full suspension bike? Yeah, the mid-stroke for sure. The reason is, is that even though you don't have a shock on the rear, the axle's pretty far behind the, the cranks where your weight is. So actually, when you hit a G-out or something like that, the the fork is doing the work for both sides. If you, if you basically, uh, if you could, put your bicycle on a board and hinge it from the front, if you yank up, which is the same thing as hitting down, you know, slamming down, if you yank up on the back, it's going to compress the fork. Your, your, the mass of the bike and your weight. So you're putting a lot of of extra work into the fork from the rear. So you need a little bit more mm-hmm. mid-stroke support, actually a lot more if you're gonna if you're gonna use a longer travel fork to to get it to feel right. 
And the, the litmus of that is if you ride a dual suspension bike and you run the low speed and the high, or the high speed compression really high in the, in the shock, it drives the hell out of the fork. Your fork feels like it's too soft all the time and it's running way, way low. So if you want to transpose that same action to, the, to a hardtail, yes. If, depending on how you ride, you have to set the fork up for both sides of the bike. Okay, next question. This is from Farty Marty. Man, I've been seeing Farty Marty on Pink Bike Cast for like a decade or something like that. He's been around for a long time. So Farty Marty wants to know, Kaz, do you think enduro bikes will evolve to the point where downhill bikes are no longer manufactured? Ooh. No, I don't think so. Just because of racing more than anything. Um, I do think that modern enduro bikes are getting ridiculously good. Like I'm riding a bike now that comes out later this month that it's insane. So, yeah. uh, you know, like we've seen it, that the trend of even at the bike park and things, you are seeing more and more people on enduro bikes because they're, you can have a one bike kind of thing, but when it comes to downhill racing, you still need a dedicated downhill bike. Um, There's a big difference between an enduro race bike and a downhill race bike. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think we'll see them no longer manufactured, but I think we already are seeing companies trim their lineups. They have basically like their race bike or even sometimes just a frame so that their races can be on that. And then their focus on the ones they're making a lot of are on their enduro bikes. Okay, next question is from Yersis. He wants you to answer this question, Casimir. What is your opinion on mullet hardtails? Have you ridden one? Did you like it? And Casimir, he wants to know why you think they're not practical. I don't think I said they were impractical. You can do whatever you want. Like with mullets, I have nothing against mullets. That's my theme today. Just do whatever. There's bikes. But I think mullets are fine if that's what, that's what you're going for, especially for shorter riders. You know, if you want a little bit smaller rear wheel, um, I think you could totally do do a mullet on a hardtail and make it work out. Um, Is there any reason why you wouldn't do a mullet on a hardtail? Like we see lots of mullet full suspension bikes, Casimir. Is that just because people buy way more full suspension bikes? Is it that simple? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's no, I mean, like personally, I do like balanced front and rear wheel size, but then I've ridden like a lot of e-bikes tend to be mullet these days and those work just fine. So I think you can just get used to anything. It's not a, you're going to find people on both sides, like saying it's magical and, and things, mm-hmm. but it's pretty easy to get used to. So, yeah. Hey, RC, back in your wrecking crew days, or maybe this was before the wrecking crew days, did you ever test the Cannondale Beast of the East with the 24-inch rear wheel and 26-inch front wheel? I never tested it, but I rode one, and it wasn't that good. So... <laughs> But remember, even then, <laughs> 20, the difference between 26 and 24 is pretty huge. And yeah. the difference between 27.5 and 29 isn't. And so that really notchy feeling you got from the mullet, from the mullet bikes, like Specialized made a couple. I made a few. We, when you went through the rocks, they, they really hooked up hard on the, and notched really bad on the, on the rear. And it just wasn't worth it. Plus the super short change stays you can get with them were not beneficial for short tr- uh, bikes that had steep head angles and and tall, tall broad, bottom brackets. <laughs> it just made it made nimbility RC all the nimbility. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nimbility to, all the way to the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got one more question. This is from Timothy's Ski. He says he's really excited to work at his local bike shop this summer. He's 15 years old, and this is going to be his first behind-the-scenes experience at a bike shop and working experience overall. He says, what should I know coming into the job? 
Well, Timmy, you're definitely going to be told to look for the left-handed hammer. You're definitely going to get a hot dog in your seat tube at some point. Um... What else, guys? <laughs> you're you're really good at crushing cardboard, breaking down cardboard boxes. You're going to be yes. so good at it. <laughs> Sweeping, you're going to get those broom calluses. <laughs> yeah. RC, what sort of advice would you give Timmy? Uh, what What should he expect? Well, first of all, the owners and the managers are skin flints. So you have to, you have to prepare yourself for somebody that's cheaper than your dad. Save those zip ties, <laughs> yeah, Save those. You're gonna get in trouble. If you don't we save all don't save the zip ties. <laughs> so, so that's my number one. And yeah, you're gonna have to get used to to doing a lot of really horrible stuff, like cleaning up bikes and changing tires on on department store bikes, because nobody wants to work on those, and that's what you're gonna do. I. I would say, RC, fixing the nice expensive stuff that we work on, a lot of times all we're really doing is swapping parts. You know, we're just part swapping. I've got a, a broken axis derailleur, I'm going to put a new one on. You know, I've got a carbon crank set, I'm going to put a different carbon crank set on. Working on fancy stuff, it's pretty easy, you know? But when you learn how to make those non-index Suntour front derailleurs shift so smoothly that it could only be magic, or you get your hands... So black and greasy, taking everything apart. I think that counts for a lot. I think those sort of skills teach you important things, not just like in, not just bike stuff too. I think it's, I think those are important life skills, how to fix something and make something good. And especially if Timmy's got to deal with customers as well, Kaz, I had to do both mechanics stuff and sales stuff. And I think that helped me a lot later in life, having to deal with the people. So yeah, yeah Timmy, yeah. Timmy. Have fun. Yeah, have fun. Make the really inexpensive, old, crappy, dirty stuff work really well. That's my advice to you. Learn how to make that stuff work awesome and uh, yeah, have fun. I agree. That's, you know, I worked at a bike shop. I actually went to Schwinn School for a long time. And, and one of the cool things is when somebody comes in and they've got a bike from a department store and you really want to work on the pro bikes instead, you're making, you're putting somebody back on the road. I mean, you're taking somebody that spent all the money they had on the piece of crap and if you can make that thing work, you're you're bringing somebody into the fold. Yeah, especially if your shop, the shop that you're going to be working at, is in maybe a location of the town that doesn't have a ton of money. Um, like the shop that I spent 10 years at, we had a lot of customers where their bikes, where their, that's how they got around. That was their transportation. A lot of people with all sorts of mental health issues and things like that. And to get a lot of these people just back on the road, they're department store bikes and sometimes it was replacing a whole bunch of spokes in a single wall steel rim that made absolutely no financial <laughs> sense what to do whatsoever but <laughs> the guy can't buy a 30 dollar aluminum single wall rim so you know fix his stuff yeah yeah we had a block of wood and a hammer to straighten those rims out yeah exactly yeah exactly and even just like doing flat fixes for somebody where you don't have to like gouge them for the labor you know if you can charge them for the tube and like a little bit of labor they're so stoked that you didn't it didn't cost 50 dollars. they didn't have to wait four weeks to get a flat fix so yeah i always like those little quick repairs that can make somebody happy that's yeah kind of nice and you start getting to know people and eventually they start bringing you treats and stuff and you get a relationship and it's all about the treat that's how you get started on donuts huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. give the guy a donut he'll fix your tube for free <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I used to do ski tunes and trade for banana bread. It was such a good deal. I used to trade flat tire repairs for cans of Monster when the boss was <laughs> It's like, I'm really busy. 
but I'll do your flat tire on your BMX bike with pegs if you go down to the store and get me a mark <laughs> and get back here within five minutes. Now. <laughs> Shout out to Corey. <laughs> Anyways, Timmy's bike shop question leads us into today's chat about working on bikes. And since we're being all positive about this, we should probably start off with some of the jobs that we like doing. RC... How long have you been working on bikes? Well, you know, my first bike was a high wheeler and, you know, it didn't have brakes except for... <laughs> and I rode it across... So I got my penny for I rode it across country on railroad tracks because there weren't any roads. That's a different guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was poor, I've been working on bikes since my first bike. And that was when I was just a baby kid, you know. So, yeah. And my favorite job is actually truing wheels. And building wheels. Oh. I yeah. love that. It's just, yeah. it's precision to get everything right. And then it's it's like this ethereal tweak and test and tweak and test. So you have a little bit of both. You have this the precision of being a wheel builder and knowing to get it right really close to the middle. And it's just that flow. You have to just wah, 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 and just yeah. set your, your mind aside and just do it. Building wheels to me feels like 50% skill and 50% magic, you know? Like, I know it's not magic. I've built countless wheels over the years. But when you're doing it, I don't know, maybe it's just like I have to concentrate so hard and it's almost like nothing else matters and you're in this zone, you know, Casimir? Oh, yeah, it's nice. I like when you have time. Like, a rushed wheel build always kind of sucks. Like, the guy's going to Whistler the next hour, and you're like, oh, crap, I got to do this. But if you have, like, a double wide slow... laced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if it's, like, a slow day in the wintertime, you're just building up some wheels just to, like, have in stock, and you have time, I kind of like that where you just kind of, you know, that's your day. You just build yeah. a bunch of wheels. And yeah, I, was in, I, I really like that, too. I haven't built a wheel for probably over 10 years. I built, used to build them all the time. I haven't built a wheel for over 10 years, and I'm just about... I think in a couple days here to lace up my first set of wheels I've built in a decade. I'm kind of nervous. Oh, yeah. I have that. Um, Get out your art of wheel building book. Yeah. Jobs. Oh, job, no. Jobs Brandt. Jobs, jobs Brandt. Yeah. <laughs> I have it on the bookshelf. <laughs> I don't foresee any any tools being thrown at all. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it depends. So once you get to the third set, that's when you know. So you're building three are, sets of wheels. You're not just building No, no, no. Like your your third set of spokes through the hole and you, you poke it through the spoke flange and then you go to line it up to the hole that it's supposed to be lined up to and it's either an inch too short, an inch too long or bang oh, on. Oh, yeah. And that's when you know. It's like stick it out almost yeah. above the rim wall. You're like, oh, maybe I can make this work. <laughs> yeah. Where are the nipple washers? <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait. Kaz, what's, what's your favorite job? Favorite job on a bike? Yeah, um, I think you and I might have a similar one, like getting a drivetrain dialed in. Like oh. somebody comes in with their their bike just fully clapped out, and if you can put new cables and housing and get it running smooth, that's pretty yeah. satisfying. You know, assuming that it's not internal cable routing that drives you nuts or something like that. I do like doing that. Um, it can be frustrating, but like a good brake bleed can be, mm. can be good. It, it, a lot of it deal, has to do with the outcome. Like during the process, you can be annoyed and like throw things <laughs> and like fluid goes everywhere. It depends <laughs> on the phase of the moon. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all sorts of other weird things. Yeah. So like if it all goes well, it might be my favorite job. But if it doesn't go well, then I hate it and never want to do it again. But yeah, I think drivetrains are pretty good or yeah, I don't know what else. I, I would agree with you on the drivetrain thing. I love putting my bike on the stand, say it's got a few weeks of hard use and some crappy weather. I've just been lubing the chain and riding the shit out of it. And I love 
cleaning everything, taking it all off, getting it all back on. And it's like mirror finish, perfectly lubed. And it just like, it shifts when you think about shifting. Yeah. I like when satisfying. I swap out an air spring and don't lose any oil. <laughs> oh. Like you could do in like an air, they could change a travel adjust on a fork yeah. and you're able to like do it all without any oil spilling. That's really satisfying. Yeah. Sarah, do you have a favorite mechanical job? I think, I mean, we were talking earlier about like just putting new parts on a bike. That's pretty satisfying. I yeah. think when you're like, we got new grips or a new handlebar, like new tires, you know, it's like, or even, yeah, new front chain ring. It's like, oh yes, or new chain. It's like, everything's just going to like, you know, work smoothly and it's not too dirty most of the time too, you know, you don't like have to throw too many tools. So I like the yeah. simple, simple, like make my bike work better jobs. After this, I'm going to go pull all the Y tools out of the far wall in the shop. Has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Sarah, I can stalling things with hammers too. Yeah. You need a, you no. need a dartboard in your workshop. I do. I that'd be like, just take your frustration out and like throw the things at the dartboard. Yeah. Sarah, when was the last time you had it on the trail mechanical that required some sort of, some sort of fixing? Ooh, I had to walk out of the trail cause I exploded my rim recently, but oh. that wasn't really fixable. Um, how did you do that? What were you doing? I, well, you know, I watched your video and then I was like, oh, I put an error yesterday. So like, probably fine. <laughs> is that actually what happened? It failed because you didn't have enough air? No, I, well, I think it might've been like one PSI low, but I don't think that's why I failed. I just like hit a clump of roots really hard. And, you know, I was yeah. just like, I'm just going to send it over there somewhere. And then, you know, that happened to be exactly where the, you know, hardest route on the trail was. So. Yeah. Okay. Well that, that one's not fixable. No. What was the last repair that you had to fix your bike to keep riding? Uh, I can't remember. I just walked out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I definitely like a lot of, pl- I put a lot of plugs in my tires. Well, we For live in Squamish. How much stuff you carry? So. <laughs> but you can't, see, now no, I just carry my... first aid stuff. You know, I don't care. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not bike first aid, just personal first aid. I guess yeah. that's good. <laughs> um, what else do I carry? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't had to, recently I've been not going with like pretty lucky with bike repairs. Yeah. Kaz, last time you had to walk out of the bush or fix your bike so you could keep moving? Uh, I fixed a chain the other day. I broke a chain. You broke a chain? Ooh. Yeah. Well, that's not that common. No, not too common, but... Uh, once or twice a year? Yeah, but it was on an idler bike. There might have been some stuff going on. Oh. Yeah, not even once or twice a year. I, yeah, it's rare that I break a chain. It's rare that I flat, too. Watch like, out for I'm, those idlers. Nothing but trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's getting paid by the non-idler <laughs> commission. <laughs> um. Yeah, I broke a chain, but then I was able to fix it, just shortened it and ran it, you know, set my derailleur to not go to the easiest gear. Yeah. I I sliced a tire a couple of weeks ago and I didn't have any plugs with me. I thought I had plugs in my pump handle, but I didn't. But I did have a tube of super glue. So then I went to go put super glue on the hole, but there was still air in the tire. So there was still some air rushing out. And I don't know why, like, I always have to look really close at everything. <laughs> so I was looking real close at this thing and I was like squirting super glue and I got super glue on my freaking lips. <laughs> uh, that was going to go in your eye. I guess your lips are better than your eye, but still. Yeah. Then you can that was a rough your frustration. And you're just like, mm. uh, is, is it, super glue sweet like Loctite? No, I didn't. It didn't really have a taste, mostly because I was panicking and trying to get it off. Really, it was only a little bit, but you still don't want to drink it. You don't want to glue your lips shut or anything. It's yeah. not good. Um, but anyways, I ended up having it didn't work, and I ended up having to like ride five minutes, pump a bunch, ride five minutes. You know the old thing. Never good. 
You didn't want to put leaves in your tire and ride out, just like I think RC used to write about. I, yeah, I did no, not write there. about that. Somebody else used to put that in the magazine all the time. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I've know tried it. So I know it doesn't, doesn't work. work. Yeah, it does not work. But it's yeah. a fun, ga- like fun game to tell people. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you do after you puncture your last tube and you've cut it and tied it into a knot. <laughs> then the next step is leaves. <laughs> I have tied tubes in not in a knot, but I used to bring zip ties and I would just slice the, the rip, you know, where the double puncture was, you know, where the pinch flap and then fold yeah. it up, fold it and zip tie it and put them back in and, and ride out. That's, that was what I used to do all the time. Oh, the last that tube. is pretty good. I picture RC like sticking sticks in his broken handlebar and finishing his 85 mile ride in California. I've done that back in 1992. <laughs> I've, I've broken a down tube and separated it and looked for sticks and, and uh, used my knife and, and carved them and put them, put, plug, plugged it back together and used uh, toast traps and string to hold the bike back together and rode out like tw- I was a 24 mile ride. RC wins. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I've used a stick to hold, I've used a stick to hold a pulley wheel on before on a derailleur. I was able oh. to find a stick, like the bolt that holds the pulley wheel on came out, and I was able to get a stick and jammed yeah. in there, broke off each side, and it worked. Yeah, there's not a lot of tension. It depends on the idler. That's, in fact, the, yeah. the last time I did a, a repair was a jockey pulley. It was a uh, uh, Gaborek, uh, really thin aluminum one, and it just collapsed. Something happened, and I had to take it out. And I and I realized I don't really need a jockey pulley if the, the bolt will work just as well. So I put the bolt back in, and... and uh, got the whole drivetrain working and it didn't shift that well but as long as you you know if as long as you played with the shifter and kept it somewhere in the middle it was it was just rode out it just made a lot of noise and i thought well, well damn you know <laughs> i can't imagine the wild mechanicals you've had in the bush like back in the 90s when bikes were very questionable and it was all about low weight like have you what haven't you broken out in the bush have you broken crank arms, seat posts, all the things I met? I have broken everything. And at, at weird times, like uh, some of the best and some of the worst bikes ever for downhill were both iron horses. And I happened to be riding the worst one on the uh, answer, uh, answer World Cup practice downhill. If you rode it now, you'd laugh. But it was the hardest downhill in, in the area. And so anyway, when I rode the bike, I... Um, First, when I got to the bottom, I thought, I will never ride this bicycle again, and I'm glad I'm alive. So I gave it to test riders that were more capable than me, than me, and they both got to the bottom, and they said, I will never ride this bicycle again, and I'm glad I'm alive. But I had to ride it again, and when I got to the top, it's a pretty steep drop-in, and I lost the brakes. The, the, <laughs> the rear brake just went flat after I went down <laughs> had committed and you have to go like 50 percent of the way down the downhill before you can stop it's it was just steep and so i just (laughs) i just threw the bike sideways at every turn and just basically flat tracked until i slammed something that turned the bike and when i got to the bottom that was it it was like i i never wanted to ride an iron horse again but every iron horse after that was good and uh, Dave Weigel, I think, designed that when he called up. He says, yeah, the factory screwed up on everything, and it wasn't the bike that we wanted. And I said, why did you send it to us then? And he said, 
I don't know. They sent it to you. It's <laughs> <laughs> the first time DW has ever been like absolutely frank about a mistake. It was just like, oh yeah, it was a horrible mistake, but you know, that's, that's all we could do. So we thought you would die. You know, I think, <laughs> I think that a lot of those Sundays saw a lot of JB well. <laughs> yeah. But everything like I have to, I have to make a confession when I, I was probably one of the first and, and sometimes the only editor in the entire world that thought that dual suspension was going to be good for everybody. And so I was pushing it really hard, hoping that the manufacturers would make good enough suspension bikes to, that would last. But while I was testing them and, and writing really good things about them, I had to bring a whole toolkit to fix everything. I mean, the, the pivots would fall out that you could not ride the best suspension bikes you could buy from Specializer, who just name, just give me a name, and you get halfway through a ride and they'd fall apart. And it was like, <laughs> I want to test bikes from back then. No. Doesn't that sound way more interesting, Casper? <laughs> no. No, no, you don't. Just hear I like me finishing out. my rides. <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. These bikes now, Kaz, the 2025 Bronson, guess what? It's really freaking good. <laughs> You know, the 1999 Iron Horse something or other, it's probably okay, probably really interesting, probably really scary in some places. I don't know. It just sounds like a way more interesting time. Depends what your goals are. Yeah, there's some cool stuff coming out now that I'm excited to test. But yeah, I mean, it's maybe less likely to fall apart on the trail. So if that's exciting, that it was definitely more exciting back then. Yeah. Well, imagine, okay. imagine you're riding a trail you've been on 50 times and you're pretty good at it. You can hit all the jumps. You can, you, and suddenly the bike, you, you're starting to make mistakes. You know, you're like, whoa, I missed that turn. Whoa, whoa. what's happening You with behind you is that the swing arm pivot bolt is working itself loose. And now it's like halfway out and the rear end is just steering the bike. But it happens gradually until it gets really bad. And then you crash and you look and you're like, oh man, and you, you got like six pounds of tools and hammers and rocks and stuff. And Hammers. Yes. I mean, literally pounding, <laughs> pounding the pivots back in with a okay. rock. <laughs> RC, it sounds like you have had some nightmare trailside repairs and just repairs in general. Is there a job, whether it's on the trail or in your workshop, that you hate more than any other repair job? Really, I hate doing jobs for people that are absolutely type a nitpickers and that would be roadies <laughs> because you when you do a wheel that's been bent or you know this is before there was carbon wheels they're all bent i mean just everybody that hits a so you have to like work to get a, a used wheel set perfect and then you give it to a guy and he comes back the next day and says hey the spokes, the spoke tension isn't right, and he plucks them like a harp, you know, do 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 This one, boom, boom. It's like, yeah, dude, because there's like a divot, and you have to argue with a person yeah. for a job that you lost money on. So, it's that's my blanket one. But what I don't really like is to try to make dead parts live, like the old Campagnolo adjustable. Um, all the hubs and the bottom rack and stuff were all adjustable bearings. And after a while, they would just get little tiny pits in them and stuff. And it's just one of those things where it has to be good enough. And I don't like the sense. I don't like the feeling when I'm, when I'm working on something that it's good enough. You know, like, well, I fly airplanes. So when you say good enough, you're like, 
on the ground. <laughs> but at 10,000 <laughs> yeah. 10, feet, it might not be good enough. So I didn't like that. And I didn't like mounting um, tubular tires. Most people don't even know what they are, mm -hmm. but I didn't mount uh, four, yeah. no, that's not four other people mm -hmm. because everything, their, their entire life depended on how well I glued their tires on. And you know, I was fine with me, but when I put out somebody else's on, I had this sense that their life was in my hands. And that, that made me nervous all the time. RC, have you ever had a tubular come off the rim? Never. And I used to, I, yeah. I honestly have been clocked by cars at over 70 miles an hour on, the, on downhills before. So. It's not the place you want your no, tubing coming off. No, it's, and no, we're, I'm talking about no helmet, uh, wool clothing, 70, with going by cars and having the kids going, 72, 72, you know, and then just by him and slingshotting up to the next group of cars and having him go 74, 75, you know. <laughs> That's pretty fast for a penny farther, right. RC. <laughs> miles, not even, yeah. yeah it, it's cool because you, you, you look under your tires and where all the stones fall off the mountains and hit the pavement or when they, the snow plows make gouges, that all blurs and, and you can actually see sunlight underneath your, your front tire all the time. You're just like, it's so cool. Okay. Mine, I got two for you guys. One, man, I dislike bleeding reverb stealth scalper. <laughs> <laughs> when you have to like pull them out so the bleed fitting oh, yeah. is, you know, oh. when things are like, you got to balance everything and it's obviously way better than and taking it off the bike and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. And installing tire inserts oh, God. is bullshit. And it's the number one reason, well, besides, I don't think tire inserts are the answer personally, but... I hate installing them. Nothing should be this hard. <laughs> so the field test, I know there's tricks. I know all the tricks. And yes, I can get the cush cores and the things in. It's fine. But it's, I, yeah, it's just too hard, Casimir. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> it. I hear you. Uh, yeah, I don't usually run inserts. Like some are easier than others, but there are definitely some that will make you throw things and get very, very angry. Yeah. So for the field test, every year, every time we do a field test, we have to install tire inserts in these things for part of the field test and thank god we don't have to do it i don't have to do it all the time shout out to alex <laughs> for doing a lot of them over the years thank you so much alex and then we've we've teamed up and done them before but man nothing is more frustrating than like struggling on insert number two and you have a pile of 18 in the corner still to go in oh yeah guys is it tricky sometimes keeping all of these test bikes rolling and keeping track of everything? And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to complain. It's amazing to be able to ride all these things. But a lot of times when you go grab a new bike, I, tell, tell me about this. How, how it's not difficult, but it can definitely be tricky sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. A lot of it comes to when you need to send them back and you realize that, oh, I swapped those grips out with that. And this stem went here. Oh. We don't switch a ton of things on test bikes, but enough little bits and pieces like oh, wait, that's my saddle that has to go on this, and that's my... So that gets tricky. And then, yeah, maintenance-wise, like modern maintenance is pretty easy, but sometimes you just realize, like, oh, I have a lot of stuff I need to, like, check up on. Like, you can just break bad swaps or mm -hmm. tires and other things. So, yeah, it's a decent amount of work, even though, you know, I don't work in a shop anymore, but I still feel like I spend a good number of hours in my own shop doing yeah. about the same things I would be. I got a, a pet peeve about working on suspension like when you have to change a shock and stuff sometimes there's like you have to go get into the levers and all that stuff and you got these little everything every part is round and when they fall out you really 
have to imagine where they went back. And then you got to look all over the shop floor for that specially cupped washer. You know, there are, they don't just yeah. use standard washers and stuff. Everything has a little machine face on it. And if you don't have them, that one washer prevents you from using the bike. And it just drives you nuts when, when you're wrenching and you're pulling and you're trying to get the whole thing apart. And all of a sudden it goes, Gadish! And that's it in space. Everything goes into slow motion and you see little <laughs> tiny shout, shout out to Rocky Mountain. Oh my God. And yeah. you're like, this is not going to end well. <laughs> yeah. Just that noise that like the three oh, God. And noise, like ding, ding, ding. And then and silence. Like, oh, oh, that's gone forever. <laughs> yeah. Kaz, I just had a, I just had a memory, more of a nightmare actually pop into my mind. We were talking about shops. You and I both worked in shops around the same time. So one of the things that bike shops need to do is they buy stuff on sale and then they obviously sell it for, for lots of money. You know, that's how you make money. And we used to buy these heavy duty downhill tires. I think they said one was a stout. It just said stout on the side in red letters. And the other one said ninja. And I want to say we bought them for like $4 and sold them for like 25 or 30 or, you know, whatever you had to do. They were the tightest fucking tires. I, like my fingertips hurt just thinking about that because in the shop, we would always try to put the tires on without levers, of course, right? <laughs> so tight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are those, in fact, even further back, there's like those intense tires and I yes. think the aero racing ones that were impossible. Like you would just, you needed like three foot long moto levers to put them on. And you're definitely gonna maybe bend the rim getting them on. And yeah, I didn't like those. Things have gotten better. We're in a better place now. It's good. Yeah. There's still frustrating things, but it's like, it seems more, more fixable. I don't know. I throw less tools. I still throw them, but not as many. I throw more tools now, but I, <laughs> you know, the insert job is bad, but the worst thing is it is putting a new tire on your old insert bike because now it's got a whole bunch of stands or whatever slimy particular brand of slime you use. And it's, everything's greasy. So now when you're trying to take it off and put it back on, everything's wrong and they say oh well just you know yep. slide everything into the depression in the rim and you're like all right jerk boy you try it you know <laughs> jerk boy <laughs> and, then, and then you know you never you never go into your shop and think hey i'm going to go change an insert you you do the sarah you're like oh i've got to change that tire before i'm going to ride this particular zone because a bald tire is going to kill me and i've only got 25 <laughs> i don't mount bike anymore i've only got an hour to do it before i have to get in my car and go you know so you forget that you're wearing your brand new jeans and you forget that you're wearing your your street shoes and stuff and you just start attacking this you know cush core thing and it's got like some sort of biological mass inside of there and pretty soon you look down and you're just covered with all the stuff and it's like I can't really say what I say because I would get <laughs> it. Definitely didn't seal the first time. Either. Oh no! And no. Like, you know, and I realized you have to use the f word and the prince of peace in the same sentence to do this job. And when you do that, you're going to lose a finger because that's the punishment. You, you, instead of going to hell, you're going to lose a finger. You know, and RC shop sounds scary. It's <laughs> <laughs> like pull out the pull out the you know just fire up the the compressor. And it's like oh yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's just, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're, you're spraying like some soapy bike wash as well to help things seat. So you've got sealant and bike wash everywhere. And you're just like that. Ah, I'm just going to close the door and knock it into my shop for a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't even yeah, like think, bikes. 
the sealant one is definitely one. When a tire won't seal, you just end up with sealant everywhere, and it's just bubbling, and like you yeah. have the soapy water, and you just feel like the soapy water is going into the tire. It should be full of soapy water soon. Yeah. Like, I'm out. <laughs> so since we're talking about jobs that are bullshit, what other jobs on your bike should be better, should be easier? We've got tires should fit easier, and they should seal up quicker and easier. Kaz, we used to know an editor who would complain every other day about bottom bracket standards, crank standards, axle standards from a guy who I feel like he should have been on fairly on top of that stuff. Do you think that for the average rider, all these different interfaces and sizes of things is an issue? There are some. Again, things are getting better. I think one of my pet peeves is the uh, the 203 rotor and 200 millimeter rotor fact that those exist. Like that yeah. three mil difference is so silly. Like those guys need to get together and be like, let's just make one because you need an adapter. So now you can get a fork. Like say you bought the new Zeb fork. It has 200 millimeter post mount adapter. But then if you want to run uh, Shimano brakes with 203 millimeter rotors, you need little washers. Yeah. And so it's not, so you have to like shim it and stuff. So I think that that'd be nice if that would get fixed. I've got, I've got two things that you reminded me of. One, I really dislike when we get a fork that has those torque cap axle uh, dropouts, but the bike doesn't have the torque caps on it. It's just a little thing. I think that's an annoying, stupid little thing. Um, also, the, the crank in the bottom bracket situation... RC, come on. That's, it's kind of silly, isn't it? Why can't, RC, why can't these brands talk to each other well, I, and just like sort it out? It's, it's kind of like where we're headed. But the first one is the brake bleed thing. It, when, you, when you get a car, one brake bleed, you know, everything's interchangeable. They've, all the brake bleed things fit the same stuff. There's really no reason why one brake bleed kit wouldn't work for the entire industry. And that, that I think we we probably should have you know we we should have like a universal fitting and and pump type stuff but as far as the bottom bracket stuff i don't know i I think that if you if you're a shram person all the shram stuff should fit it's just is it as simple as each of these companies we're going off on a bit of tangent here but is it as simple as these companies these drivetrain brands honestly believe that their solution their 30 mil solution is better than this 28 millimeter solution or these bearings are a few millimeters bigger. Like, God, I wish they would just talk to each other. I don't think it's a huge deal, but it would be nice if everything was the same, Kaz. I agree. So my last, my last thing that I'm going to complain about that I wish was better is that I wish we could replace separate parts on some of our smaller bits, especially like our derailers. Like when you bend a cage, I wish I could buy a SRAM derailleur cage or Shimano derailleur cage and just replace the damn thing or pull the pivots out without wrecking the derailleur. I wish the derailleurs were serviceable um, so we could get into them and, and fix stuff. I'd agree on that one for the lowers, that, that the, the cages should be one unit. And SRAM's close to that. Shimano isn't. But that's, you know, it hangs out. In the, anything that hangs out and gets smashed by rocks should be a, a, a replaceable item. Um, yeah. I, th- I think one of my pet peeves that w- should be addressed is why do you need four different torques sizes to work on, you know, a cockpit or something like that? I, I think that the axles should have one Allen size. There should be like just two wrenches for the entire bike. 
Um, it, it's a no brainer. I think Rocky Mountain did it for three years and then just got tired of fighting everybody on it. But there's, there doesn't need to be a thousand different sizes. And if you could carry just two, two tools, more, more people would carry tools, you know, you wouldn't have the, the downhill, um, pretty boys going around. They don't want little lumps in their jerseys or pockets anywhere. And so they just don't bring any tools and, and it'd be, it'd be nice to see. But as far as the derailleur goes, one of the hardest things, you know, we took, we go back to the shops. One of the hardest things that to do is bend things back and derailleurs have gotten pretty good. And I think through axles have solved most of the problems, but until through axles, bending bikes mm -hmm. back was common. Can you explain why RC, the through axles are kind of tied into um, more derailleur reliability? Oh, easy schmeasy. Um, back when everybody was on steel hardtails, that's, like it was a seven millimeter width piece of steel and it was just a C, it was half a, half a circle. And the derailleur hang out, hung out at the bottom. So they bent and or broke and when we had to have replaceable uh, dropouts to solve that problem. And in Europe, uh, flagged by Germany or, or uh, led by Germany, nobody would accept a bicycle that didn't have a replaceable dropout. So you take this little thin piece of steel and divide it in half and you're guaranteed it's gonna bend. You might be able to replace it, but it's guaranteed to bend. So fast forward to through axles. Now you have a circle of steel or aluminum around that, which makes a really solid place to put a replaceable uh, chip in there. And because the axle goes all the way through it, you're squeezing both of those pieces together with some force. And it, it was a big milestone because then it was rare that we bent one. We still did, but it, when derailleurs got strong enough and that mounting got got stiff enough, people realized, oh, we're not bending very many derailleurs. Why don't we just make that stiff so bicycles, bicycles shift again? And now it's rare. But now we have to bend the cages sometimes. <laughs> That's the weak point now, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, the cages are the weak point. And some of them are carbon. So it's like, you know... It's, always there's somebody in the, in the group that has a bike that won't shift and you look at it and it's kind of wanked and you say, okay, well, let's, mm -hmm. let's make the $200 fix. And it didn't break. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of bending derailleurs, RC, let's talk about some mechanical mistakes oh. that we've made. I'm going to go first. I had a roadie come into the shop one time and all he needed was a new shift cable easy. I'm in a rush. I go to push the shift cable through. It didn't go through the little slot, you know, where the, where the lead shot at the end there needs to nestle in. It didn't go through. Instead, it was just like pushed through and it came out the cable housing hole at the other end. And then I grabbed the cable with my hand to give it some tension. And then you just run through the gears, right? Uh -oh. Well, <laughs> basically the entire Shimano STI shifter just crunched and was destroyed. Um, you can't rebuild them. Shimano doesn't sell you tiny little parts for these things. So I had to buy him a new one, not the end of the world. And the plus side is it gave me a chance to take apart an STI shifter, which is pretty neat. They're like Swiss, little Swiss watches. Yeah, and the uh, gears and things in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was neat. And then I tried to get it back together. I don't think I sorted it out, but it was a, it was a good opportunity to see what's going on inside there. The other time this guy came in with this fancy tri bike and RC, you know when you just need to put a bike on a stand for a second to change something? <laughs> oh. You rotate the clamp so that the seat, so the clamp is flat, and you just hang it by the nose, right? No biggie. I was rushing. I put the seat 
I put the nose of the seat on the clamp to hang it. And for some reason, I reached up and I pushed down this big, long lever to clamp. I clamped it like it was a seat post. And the bike was in there for maybe 10 minutes. And I took it off and I realized I had crushed this guy's $300 carbon triathlon seat in the work stand. Oh, my God. I remember when I worked at a shop, similar story. But for some reason, maybe it was like that 15-year-old Timmy, he uh, put the bike on the stand but he clamped the top tube and broke the top tube. That's worse. That's <laughs> yeah. Worse. <laughs> Not good. Be careful. <laughs> I think one of my most embarrassing mechanical mistakes takes, this one is a hard, hard one for me to admit, but I don't have a lot of shame. So whatever. <laughs> my buddy Wayne, <laughs> my buddy Wayne, he bought a, uh, a Cannondale Profit four cross bike from the shop I worked at. And I built it up for him and he, he, we were going for a ride at the end of the day at six o'clock. So it was big rush, big rush. And I get it all done. He takes it. He leaves. He calls me a couple hours later. His brake pads fell out of the rear caliper. I forgot to put in the cotter pin on these Shimano brake pads. I had that happen to a friend once. She like changed them right before we went and like tried this enduro stage. And then we go over a little drop and she's like, huh. Something doesn't feel right. And then we had to like search for 20 minutes to find her brake pads in the dirt. I've seen that too. Yeah. Oh, I just thought of a mistake that I made. I was, or it's more like a, yeah, it's a mistake, but I was, um, in the old haze brakes, you could pop the pistons out by just using the air compressor. Yep. You know, like put the caliper in a rag and use the air compressor and pop the pistons out that way so you could work on them. And I did that, but somehow it just shot out and just like shot across the shop and it happened to be the day that my boss had his kid there and his kid was like three years old or something, like a little kid. And it kind of came close to hitting his kid. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, not to one. win it your didn't hit him, but Better it was luck like, next time, Cass. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was like a loud popping noise, you know, and, and, and then it just yeah. shot across the shop. And then my boss was very mad again. So, so before we get on to Comment Gold, let's, let's talk about shop injuries. Since we're talking about mistakes. <laughs> All that time in bike shops, Kaz... How many times have you cut your hands? <laughs> yeah, a lot. A lot of thumb, like the tip of my thumb in the disc in the rotor is yeah. uh, pretty yeah. common, just losing the tip. Uh, so many cuts and then all the chemicals. Yeah, I don't know if they're good for me. Like combine the ski shop time and then the bike shop time. I don't know. My lungs are either really tough or I've got emphysema or something. Like I would have my hands in solvent for like seven hours, Kaz. <laughs> no gloves. Oh yeah. The, the full, <laughs> uh, I wore gloves with the solvent tank. I knew that stuff was not good for me. <laughs> <laughs> It makes the drivetrain so shiny. It's going to make yeah. my hands really clean too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, there's some solvents that that actually have a benefit, but it might be a really bad benefit. So, so making bicycles, you know, you have to weld superpowers. Oh yeah. This, so <laughs> yeah. this is let's fast forward from the Schwinn shop to uh, Mantis when I was when I was a bicycle builder, and you have to make the aluminum super clean in order to weld it. And so we use MEK, which is the strongest uh, petroleum thinner you can buy without a without a permit. And you can only get it in smaller quantities these days. So MEK is, is so volatile that basically when we clean tables with it, we just take a striker, you know, a little uh, striker that used to start a acetylene torch and just click it over this big aluminum table and the whole thing would light up and stuff. But anyway, I had this job to do uh, and I had to finish a whole bunch of aluminum welding, and it was just me. I used to work, do all my welding late, and I'm just, we had this um, 
big tube so we wouldn't waste a lot of it. And we called it the boner of cleanliness because it had a cap on it and it looked pretty phallic. So, so I was dipping... PG-13 podcast, everybody. <laughs> yeah, so, so we were dipping all the tubes and getting them all clean and the boner of cleanliness. And I, so I, I got everything ready. I did all my welding and stuff. And MEK, it goes systemic. You're supposed to wear special gloves or anybody. And I wasn't because I was welding with gloves on and, and then cleaning parts. So I, I get home. And it's, it's my uh, birthday the next day. And, uh, and I'm starting to feel a little aggravated down in my pelvic region. You know, like, wow, something's kind of uncomfortable. Aggravated you know? good or aggravated well, bad? Well, aggravated bad. It was like, oh, this isn't feeling good. Oh. So anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night. And, and my part, my, I'll just call it my part, was the largest... His component. It was large and red and just, and I'm going, and it, it just, it was, I'm like, what the hell? And it hurt. Like it's the slightest just touch on, on the sheets was like, like acid. I'm like, oh my God. And my, my wife at the time wakes up and goes, what's wrong? And I said, it must've been the M-E-K. Everything. And she says, happy birthday, Richard. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> It turns out that MEK attacks uh, those membranes on your lips and, and your parts, and it, I would not recommend it. Although, if you want to see a great show, you might take the risk. But I, anyway, there, there was no lasting damage. Everything seemed to work later on, and it went back to normal. But they, from then on, when we, <laughs> they called it, uh, my my workers called it Mantis Magic Lingam Lotion, and it, that's kind of how shop talk goes but anyway that's that was it that's my story about RC. bad chemicals rc it is always great having you on this podcast <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> <So> <laughs> we gotta have you on more that's that story definitely that story definitely trumps my two bike shop injuries that i picked out uh one of them was I used to wear sandals to work all the time. It, my boss would always tell me not to, but then he, when he would go away, I would always wear sandals. And uh, I was cutting spokes, and cut spokes are super sharp. And they were all over the floor, and I stepped on one. I guess it was like leaning on something, like on a, on a rubber mat. It was on an angle, and it went through my sandal and through the webbing between my big toe and the toe next to it. Yeah, there was a lot of blood. Boss never found out about that one. Um, and then the other one, is I was trying to pull an axle cap off a WTB hub with pliers. <laughs> you know, you should be gentle. You should just grab it and like turn it and wiggle it gentle. But I was 20. I'm not gentle when I'm 20. So I'm looking right over the center of this hub with my pliers grabbing the axle cap. And 20-year-old Mike Levy is pulling up as hard as he possibly can. Was he angry? He was angry, wasn't he? Uh, he was probably angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 20-year-old Mike was the same as 40-year-old Mike. So what happens? I don't remember if the cap came off or the pliers slipped off, but I smoked myself in the middle of the face with the end of these these metal pliers like it felt like somebody shot me in the face i went on the ground there was blood everywhere so on and so forth <laughs> kaz what do you got anything that yeah. beats rc's component? i can't beat Sorry. those two no the component in the face like yeah mine are mostly cuts like i just remember fixing a lot of cuts with electrical tape like yes. you're bleeding and you have to keep working like electrical tape is good for a bandage. You just stick it on and it holds it together. And then you have yeah, like, after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it cleans it all up. Burns. It's like antiseptic. <laughs> yeah. I think mostly just cuts is what I remember, but a good amount of them. 
Okay, mm-hmm. let's move on to our comment gold and wrap up podcast number 66. Our first one is from Jay Dubma. So last podcast, we briefly talked about who we would nominate for villains in the mountain bike scene. So Jay here, he's got five that he's nominated. Number one, Brian Lopes. <laughs> I, I like Lopes. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but he's a good villain too. Yeah, he is a great villain. He plays the part Jeff Gubish would, would nominate him. Yep. Yeah. Number two, Mike Sinyard. Jay says for always suing the little guy. I think there's more, you know, I do, it doesn't look good when Specialized does. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to say anything. It doesn't look yeah. good. Yeah, you could. Yeah, that uh, goes the next the one, <laughs> Tinaka Crawl. So uh, this one is, she's, a, she's an older lady that lives in North Vancouver. And a couple years ago, she was booby trapping the trails and, and tearing stuff down. And I think they caught her on on a bush camera or something, eh? a game camera, Kaz? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number four, he's got sick bicycles. Not terrible. Not terrible. <laughs> number five, UCI. Well, that was a given. <laughs> uh, Mikey MT, for his comment gold, he has a good suggestion for mountain bike villains. He says Rogatkin is the best. Nikolai Rogatkin is the best mountain bike villain. He's the Joker to Branded Seminuk and Brett readers batman i think i'd agree with that yeah he really yeah. is that's a good one too yeah he's not like a villain is he doesn't he's not doing anything wrong but he definitely he's he's cutting his own path there i feel like yeah doing things a little differently uh jeremy 3220 he says pro feeling badass hitting lines on your hardtail con feeling your balls shrivel after watching a bmx edit of some guy landing a 10-foot roof drop to flat pavement with no suspension and 90 psi in his tires <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that is it for number 66 let us know in the comments what your worst mechanical job is what mechanical job do you love doing what about tools do you have a favorite tool and guys you know one thing we didn't talk about on this podcast i wanted to talk about our home workshops do you guys have a home workshop maybe we'll save that we'll do an entire episode on home workshops we'll see you next week Thanks, everybody.